0: Hello and welcome to the Friday Podcast. My name is Garrett Morrison. These are interesting times in the golf world. As you probably know, the government of Saudi Arabia is making major inroads in professional golf. Most significantly, it's funding the creation of a so called Super Golf League, which would pay players massive amounts of money and would pose a direct threat to the PGA Tour. Now, this plan has taken a hit recently because of some comments from Phil Mickelson. Mickelson had been very involved in planning for the Super Golf League, but he couldn't help over-explaining himself to reporters, and he ended up saying some pretty shocking things and setting off a PR meltdown. Big names like Bryson DeChambeau and Dustin Johnson have now backed away from the Saudi League, and they say they'll stay on the PGA Tour for the time being. But make no mistake— Saudi Arabia is not going anywhere. It still has effectively unlimited financial resources to spend on its golf strategy. It's still holding lucrative events like the Saudi International and the Saudi Ladies International. It still has a huge investment in the Asian tour. And all the inside chatter I've heard indicates that the Super Golf League is still going to happen in some form, whether the top players participate initially or not. So it's incredibly relevant to understand what Saudi Arabia is doing here, what it really wants out of golf. And what it wants, I believe, is sports washing. Now, we'll explain what the term sports washing means toward the beginning of this episode, but I should mention up front that it is a somewhat politically charged topic. And I want to clarify that I do have my own opinions about it. So to my guests, I'm not going to make any secret of that, But my main intention here is to lay out the issues in a clear way so that you can be as informed as possible. I have two guests today. There's Will Bardwell, a civil rights attorney who moonlights as an excellent golf writer. And there's Helen Linsky, who's done academic research on how the Olympics relate to global politics. First, you'll hear briefly from Will. Then we'll jump over to my conversation with Helen and then go back to Will to close things out. Hope you enjoy All right. Will Bardwell, welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. Uh we, we should have had you on before for something, I'm sure, but uh, but we've we've been internet friends for a while. It's it's good to finally have you I on here. I
1: appreciate the invitation. I was thinking about it before I hopped on. And I think this is my first time on the Mothership pod. I have done the shotgun start before, but this is first time on the proper pod. Thanks for having me.
0: I know it's it has been too long and, and, and we're glad to have you. The the immediate reason for your being on this podcast is that we're trying to do a, a bit of a summary podcast on what sports washing is and how that ties into Saudi Arabia's involvement in golf and you wrote a terrific article on your website lyingfor.com called blind men and blood the uh, the subtitle to that was De Mickelson and others tilt from Craven to complicit so fantastic uh, headline and and subhead there as an editor I appreciate the craft that that went into that so, Basically, what prompted you to write this article
1: now? One of the things that that I find myself uh, doing a lot of writing in response to at Line 4 is that it, it, there seem to be these big stories in golf that, for whatever reason, just don't get written. Um, I, I have made no secret of the fact that I, I don't think much of uh, the journalistic tenacity of uh, sort of legacy golf media, uh, that they're way too cozy with uh, establishment golf institutions and players. And I think that probably has something to do with the fact uh, that a story like this hadn't been written yet. Uh, and so I I was very interested in how this all fit into, and by this I mean the, uh, the uprising of the, the Saudi golf effort, how it fit into the history of sports washing and how it got started and, and what it looks like in other contexts. That's what got me interested.
0: Why don't you, you know, we're going to specifically talk about the golf element of this. There's another discussion to have about sports washing in general, um, but now it has come into golf in a big way with Saudi Arabia's, you know various attempts to start this breakaway league. So maybe you could just give me some general background on, first of all, let's talk about Saudi Arabia. W- what is what are the the basics of the human rights record here? and why people might find it objectionable to be involved with them.
1: Without going into the the fine details of it, Saudi Arabia has one of the worst human rights records on the planet, which is saying a lot because there are a lot of nations out there with less than stellar records on human rights. Uh, But uh, Saudi Arabia in particular has a sordid history of the way it treats women, uh, women under Saudi Arabia law are technically minors. Uh, and so there, there is very little that they are allowed to do without uh, the permission and usually the, the physical presence of a man. They have uh, have treated political dissidents, uh, gay people, religious minorities uh, by you know throwing them into prison indefinitely. I mean it is no exaggeration to say it's one of the most repressive regimes in the world
0: all right so two notes up front based on when we're recording this so we're recording this on monday it's february 21st and i mentioned that because this podcast is probably going to come out on friday and a lot might happen between now and then given how quickly things have been moving lately Also, it's relevant that it's Monday because today is President's Day, and both of us have kids home. And so, if uh, if people hear interruptions on on either end, uh, that that's why that's why that's going on. I I very well may have a a seven year old and a four year old burst into my room at some point. Uh, uh, So uh, keep that in mind as we're going through this extremely serious timeline on a very serious issue. Um, So uh, maybe you could tell me about the. The the general decision that happened, whether it was in the mid 2010s or late 2010s for Saudi Arabia to become involved in a sport like golf in the first place. I mean, Saudi Arabia has become involved in formula one as well as other sports. Why is it that Saudi is making this push to be involved in sports? What's going on there with their sort of, you know, economic uh, history that's, that's, motivating them to be involved in this way in the sports world.
1: It's interesting that you ask that after uh, sort of going through an overview of Saudi Arabia's human rights record, because the, you know, the, the reason Saudi Arabia has been able to get by with its human rights record without a ton of pushback from Western nations is that Saudi Arabia is sitting on the second largest petroleum reserves on the planet. And, you know, for decades, Western Democracies even have been uh, at the mercy of those oil reserves. But, of course, we find ourselves at a moment in history where developed nations are moving farther and farther away from being totally dependent on oil. And Saudi Arabia sees that as clearly as anyone and understands that if it wants to endure as uh, a, a political power and an economic power, over the next, say, 100 years, then it has to do something about its dependence on oil as an economic driver. And so in 2016, Saudi Arabia began an organized effort to begin trying to recruit non-petroleum-based investment in the country, foreign investment, which, of course, opens up the whole Human rights issue again. It's one thing for, say, the United States government to turn the other cheek and uh, and you know a, a blind eye to what's going on over there. It's it's quite another for, say, a publicly held company with shareholders uh, and a board of directors that has to face those shareholders at annual meetings to uh, set up shop in Saudi Arabia. And so the Saudis have understood that if they're going to be able to attract the level of foreign investment that will be required to replace uh, that income from oil, then they're going to have to put on a pretty good public relations effort, and that is where uh, the Saudis' interest in sports has come from.
0: All right, so now is a good time to define the term sports washing, which I'd imagine a lot of people have heard by now. It's it's kind of entered the lexicon recently in a big way. I think the term has been around for a while, but I personally only became aware of it uh, recently. And so could you give us a working definition of sports washing?
1: Yeah. So anyone who's familiar with the term whitewashing will understand what sports washing is. It's just whitewashing through the use of elite high-level sports. Uh, It is a, a tactic that repressive regimes have used to try to Put on a, a nice show for the rest of the world, dating back to uh, the 1936 Olympics in Berlin, uh, when uh, Germany hosted the Summer Games and um, portrayed itself as a welcoming, tolerant, progressive member of uh, of Western Europe. And um, largely, it worked. And regimes have been sort of following that playbook for decades since. So it's not like Saudi Arabia invented this, you know. Um, it, it's been going on, and and the damnedest thing about it is that people, by and large, understand when it's going on, what is happening, and yet it it remains a a wildly successful strategy for uh, for you know cleaning up your international reputation.
0: Right. Yeah. The, and the idea is to continually push the bad headlines out. And have sports-related headlines come in and to have people think that, okay, sports and politics are not related. Sports, in fact, for a lot of people, they view it as a break from politics, as their escape from that world. And so it's very useful to have sports-related stories coming out that are associated with your country if you don't want other kinds of news to be you know, associated with you.
1: Totally. I mean, think about like sort of your average Joe on the street who, you know, probably doesn't watch the local or probably doesn't watch the nightly news anymore. Sorry, I almost said local news. Shout out Lou Turner. (laughs) Um, But but, um, you know, if you're only a moderate consumer of sort of you know current events type news, but you are into sports enough that you you catch those sorts of events at least every now and then. Then, over time, the amount of news that you see coming out of that country is going to be more and more, you know, F one races and you know the WWE pay per views and that sort of thing. Uh, and you know, I think it's only natural for someone who really isn't spending a lot of time thinking about this sort of stuff that the the less they're hearing about political dissidents being thrown in jail and the more they're hearing about uh, what Dustin Johnson did at the Saudi International, then uh, you're going to begin to think that, well, things must not be that bad over there anymore. All right. So, uh, Dr. Helen Lenski,
0: welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today?
2: Good. Thanks for inviting me.
0: So Helen, you are a professor emerita at the University of Toronto, and you're the author of many books, including one called The Olympic Games, A Critical Approach, which was published in 2020. Uh, You've been studying the concept of sports washing for decades, but it seems to me that it has become much more a part of the public discourse recently, at least in the golf world. So why do you think it is that People more people are paying attention to this idea now.
2: the big sport mega event obviously is the Olympics, and it always attracts global attention and then uh, the world saw the IOC in two thousand and one uh choose Beijing to be the host of the Summer Olympics in two thousand and eight and then a repeat of that with twenty twenty two being to, uh, Beijing for twenty twenty two and that just ended and In the middle, um, Sochi, Russia, being chosen for 2014 Winter Games, and again, an authoritarian regime, uh, which actually suits the IOC quite well because they can pretty much be assured that the Games will be on time, on budget, run efficiently and effectively. There won't be irritating uh, protests and that kind of thing because they're going to be suppressed so those angles um, have attracted world attention and but of course um, sports washing isn't limited to these authoritarian regimes. Western countries do very well at exploiting sport to improve their image and to cover up um, very basic social problems like poverty and homelessness uh, underhoused people the um lack of social services for disadvantaged populations, racism. Uh, I have a book on the Sydney Olympics where I discuss uh, race relations between Aboriginal Australians and non-Aboriginal Australians, uh, a long history of uh, oppression that uh, the, the opening ceremony and the closing ceremony in particular for the Sydney Olympics did a bu- brilliant job of sports washing because they had Incorporated a lot of what they called aboriginality and symbols and cultural um, aspects, and so it looked like everything was good, uh, with the uh, in race relations in Australia, and that was so far from the truth.
0: So, yeah, the sports washing is not limited to dictatorships, this is something that. Uh, modern democracies do as well. And I would imagine these are going to be issues perhaps in the Los Angeles Games, which are coming up this decade. You spoke to how issues like homelessness can be sports watched. I, I would imagine that that could be potentially a goal of the LA Games.
2: Absolutely. Um, the people who were watching on the ground for the 84 Olympics saw that happen in terms of. Getting rid of homeless people and so on, and that crack those crackdowns are already happening um, many years before LA will actually host the games. So yeah, um, this this is a trend for sure.
0: Why have the Olympics been such a prime target for sports washing? Do you think
2: um, a, t- a target in the sense of the bid city thinks that
0: yes. Yeah, why, why is it such an attractive uh, method of sports watching? Yeah, I guess would be the way to phrase
2: sport it. Sport isn't political. That's the theory. So, uh, <laughs> right. Um,
0: and Olympic sports especially are 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 thought to be far from political. Yeah, yeah. They're,
2: they're, it's about sport. It's not about anything else. If you believe the the propaganda coming from the Olympic industry that um, it's simply a sporting event. Uh, we don't get into politics. We shouldn't get into politics, and politics should not be involved at all even though just the mere choice of a city like Beijing or Sochi is a political issue. And the IOC members know that perfectly well, but their propaganda machinery puts out the message that there shouldn't be any political uh, interventions or any political connections. Sport is not political, so the theory goes.
0: I thought maybe you could take us through a brief history of sports washing, is the 1936 Olympics hosted by Nazi Germany where that history starts?
2: Probably the, the best documented would be that. And and most people are aware of the, um, the way that um, anti-Semitism was kind of put under wraps during the Olympics. And uh, Avery Brundage had a chat with Hitler and sort of they.
0: Avery Brundage, who was the head of the U.S. Olympic community. exactly,
2: Yeah. And, um, Americans were, uh, American sport administrators were kind of uh, pressuring him to do something, you know, proactive, uh, for want of a better word. And uh, he came back to the US saying that it was all under control. And for the duration of the game, some of the sort of overt symbols of anti Semitism, like no Jews allowed on the streets or whatever the street sign, you know, notices on streets, uh, those were. Uh, removed for the duration. So there was the sort of semblance, but uh, definitely Hitler and the, the Nazis used the 1936 Olympics uh, to promote Aryan superiority and uh, forbade uh, Jews from participating in many instances and so on. So yeah, that was an early example. But thinking back to the very beginnings uh, with the Kubertan and Company, um, had an agenda that involved a colonializing project, particularly in relation to Africa. So not strictly sport washing, but using the appearance of sport or using sport as a vehicle to get to colonise, in a sense, um, to make the Olympic model, the achievement model, faster, higher, stronger, to be the only game in town so africans and asians were doing other kinds of sporting activities that had been they'd been doing for centuries um the cubitan and the europeans and the uk people um came up with one narrow model which is sport being faster higher stronger and that was the end of any recognition or um funding for alternative kinds of sport
0: So to go back for a minute to the Nazi Olympics, you mentioned the story of the head of the U.S. Olympic Committee, Avery Brundage, negotiating essentially with Hitler to take down some of the most overt appearances of anti-Semitism in in Germany during the Olympic Games. And I, I suppose that this would be an example that some you know, that that what Brundage perhaps thought he was doing was using the Olympics to have a a good influence on Germany, perhaps. But how did that turn out?
2: Yeah, not well, as we all know. And the same with China. Um, The IOC at the time, early 2000s, uh, choosing Beijing for the 2008 Games, said, don't worry, we'll do all this soft diplomacy behind the scenes. Uh, sort of like the ping-pong diplomacy and Nixon and so on. So um, that was what they said. Uh, there's ample evidence that since China hosted the Olympics, um, organisations like Amnesty International and Freedom House, uh, Human Rights Watch, have documented how conditions have gone from bad to worse, that human rights violations have just escalated. The Olympics made no impact whatsoever, even though you know, some some sports sociologists like myself um, was not like myself in terms of their political approach. But sports sociologists were saying, "Oh, this will bring China in line. This will advance human rights causes in China by decades because the eyes of the world will be on China, and they'll have to clean up their act." That did not happen. We see the situation with Uyghurs, um, the Uh, uh, human rights violations involving Uyghurs, people in Hong Kong, Tibetans. There's a long list. And dissidents in China, who are Chinese nationals themselves, have no chance of speaking out. They'll get put in prison or disappear.
0: And much of that seems to have escalated after the 2008 Games.
2: Uh, Exactly. Yeah
0: so there there might even be an argument that uh the olympic games kind of provides the smoke screen and then then afterwards you know even worse things can can happen than were happening before
2: yeah yeah like you see coverage now of the the beijing winter games that have just ended and the coverage focuses on sport it might mention covid At the beginning, a lot of us were getting a lot of inquiries from journalists about the Uyghurs and um, I co-authored something with an Ontario uh, Western University colleague and that got a lot of media attention because it got a lot of reads and then journalists wanted to focus on the Uyghur situation rather than the sports side or talk about how each of them uh, were connected. But sort of getting back to... um, Negotiate, uh, Olympic officials negotiating with dictators um, like Hitler, the IOC members said they would have a chat to Putin when the uh, homophobic legislation came into effect the year before the Sochi 2014 Olympics. So they had a quiet chat and Putin said something like, or the, the Russian government said something like, um, well, uh, LGBTQ uh, athletes and visitors coming from overseas will be perfectly safe. Don't worry, they can come. They they won't be harassed or thrown in prison. That was not particularly reassuring for the thousands and tens of thousands of LGBT people in Russia who'd already been subject to this legislation. So um, this kind of sports washing you know, covers up such a multitude of sins, really.
0: It seems like the IOC often claims for itself more political power than it ends up having,
2: yes, it has an observer seat in the UN, and it sort of exploits that to sort of say that it's on the one hand, it serves their purpose to say we have an observer seat. On the other hand, it says we're not political, we don't have any clout vis-a-vis uh, domestic uh, politics and so on. Uh, we we can't afford to do that. That's not our job. we our job is to put on a good sport event.
0: So outside of the Olympics, which sports recently have gotten caught up in sports washing or in these kind of uh, obvious attempts by nation states to to exercise power? What, what, what sports have really been, you know, in that arena?
2: Well, Qatar is hosting the World Cup, and uh, that has a horrendous record of uh, human rights abuses not just in the country, but the migrant workers coming from nearby countries who have died on the job, uh, whose rights have been totally stripped of them, uh, they have no recourse, they simply show up for work, uh, I think their passports were taken. There's been a lot of investigations by human rights organisations into that situation and uh, very little impact in improving their conditions. So um, that's one of the examples and uh, I think in 2021 um, Belarus hosted over 100 sport mega events and Belarus is not exactly a shining light of democracy, Um, but um, the various international federations, uh, major federations, not just something minor like the international fencing or whatever, not to put down fencing, but uh, there were big sports and Belarus made the most of it to polish their image in the world stage
0: do you see a path by which sports in general or maybe just olympic sports in particular can separate themselves from these unappealing harmful politics and move forward to have a good effect on the world or do you think this is just the way things are
2: ah uh. I'd mainly say no, but then one example that I have used in some of my books um, is the or was the gay games until they kind of fell apart oh, <laughs> because yeah. they were based on such democratic community-oriented principles. There were no qualifying events. Um, I swim recreationally. If I wanted to be in the gay games, I'd just pay my money and i swim and i come last in my age group or whatever and everyone cheers me because that's what it's about and uh the opening act is a lot of gay men in uh synchro swimming outfits you know doing a sort of send up of the synchro <laughs> and uh, you know the atmosphere is just so not olympic even though they started off by wanting to call the, the gay games the gay olympics and of course the ioc stepped in and said you can't do that so there was that um, inclusive principle, but then reality hit and they had to have corporate sponsors. So they ended up having, you know, the, the running shoe sponsor and the bottled water sponsor and the IT sponsor and so on. Um, the same sort of as an aside with the pride marches in the city of Toronto where I live that they have very, very visible corporate sponsorship and and. those sponsors probably get better advertising than they pay for (laughs) through the games. And the gay community doesn't necessarily, or LGBTQ community doesn't necessarily get the benefits that that we would like. So that's how it, um, you know, in the the world of, in a capitalist country, that's how things work. And it's not surprising that gay games needed money. Every host city that hosted the gay games um, needed corporate sponsors and they got them.
0: Well, believe it or not, as odd as it may sound, these kinds of dynamics will sound very familiar to people who follow golf. So <laughs> thank you so much for uh, speaking with me today, Helen, and good luck with your continuing research.
2: Thank you. Thank you for asking me.
0: Before we switch back to the rest of my conversation with Will Bardwell, I'd like to say a quick word about Friday egg events. Over the next four weeks, we will open up a new event for registration every Monday at noon Eastern Time. That's four event registrations, four weeks. All registrations for Friday events are now on Golf Genius. I'll put a link to our Golf Genius page in the show notes, but you can also get there through thefriday.com. So, first up is the Cheese Steak, which will take place in August at Huntington Valley Country Club, a fantastic William Flynn course near Philadelphia. Registration for the Cheese Steak starts this coming Monday, February 28th, noon Eastern. Next is the second annual Stalemate at Meadowbrook Country Club near Detroit. That's a September event, and registration is on Monday, March 7th. Then we have the Backyard. Boston accent in late September at the Donald Ross designed Essex County Club nearish to Boston, Massachusetts. Registration March 14th. And finally, the 2022 Scraper at Prairie Dunes Country Club in Hutchinson, Kansas. That will be in October and registration opens on Monday, March 21st. Again, noon Eastern time. We're really looking forward to these events. Let us know if you have any questions, and we hope to see you out there. All right, back to sports washing and Will Bardwell. Okay, so now getting into the specific way that Saudi Arabia has gone about this sports washing process in the world of golf. So, you know, mid 2010s, late 2010s, Saudi Arabia starts to organize an effort to Become involved in the golf world and to attract professional golf tournaments. Early 2019 is the first edition of the Saudi International, which at this point is part of the European Tour. And the main thing I remember from that first Saudi International is Sergio Garcia's outburst in a bunker, <laughs> where where he just went bananas and. Um, <laughs> And he, he got, he got booted from the event. I but believe if, the,
1: if there were any player on tours during in our lifetimes that you would pick to spend the rest of his life in a Saudi prison, I think, I think <laughs> oh, no. betting on Sergio would have been money. Well, well spent. <laughs> yeah he he was uh
0: th- there was some concern that that he had made the wrong people mad with that particular abuse of the uh, of of royal greens the, the course there in, in in Saudi uh so in any case, Dustin Johnson wins this Saudi international. Sergio Garcia dominates the headlines with this tantrum that he threw, but in the meantime, a very interesting thing starts to happen, and that's that players prove themselves quite willing to carry water for Saudi Arabia, specifically Bryson DeChambeau saying, I think it's amazing what Saudi Arabia is doing and what the European tour is doing is doing and that sort of sets the tone for how golfers are going to talk when they're at this event and i think it's something that makes golf a little bit different because because it's such an individual sport because the players are their own so to speak brands that they, they're independent contractors they are choosing to go there and in a sense they're they're asked to justify that and so things like this come out of their mouths whereas a formula 1 driver like lewis hamilton feels a little more free to be critical of Saudi Arabia when formula one is there because he is not necessarily choosing to be there. That's just where one of the races is. And that's where all of the drivers, all of the drivers participate in all the races. And so golfers almost feel this impulse to defend.
1: That's a really good point. Um, it, the Saudi international is certainly not the first golf tournament where golfers have been put in the position of defending organizers of a tournament who have a uh, a less than stellar record on uh, on human rights i'm thinking uh, particularly of augusta national but the i'll tell you the part of the moment in the life of the saudi international that kind of started to worry me um you know in 2019 when bryson uh, said what he said i mean I have a certain opinion of Bryson DeChambeau that uh, that something like that fits pretty well. I think a lot of other people probably think the same thing of him. But tw- in 2019, the first year that the tournament was held, Paul Casey spoke of it in terms that I thought were, um, were really admirable. He seemed to understand um, what was going on. And that by the next year, his tune had changed completely. Uh, he said this was something he wanted to go check out and uh, and and see what it was all about. Um, but that clearly he understood what was going on, understood that it was important for him not to be part of it and give it legitimacy. And yet, a year later, for reasons that I, I can only assume had to do with uh, the appearance fee that was being offered, had done a, a complete one hundred and eighty on it.
0: Yeah, and this is kind of how normalization works too, where I think that not only was Paul Casey persuaded by the appearance fee, but also by the fact that this was the second year of the Saudi international and it had just started to become part of the professional golf landscape. And it wasn't as big of a deal to be involved that second year,
1: which is one reason. And I know I'm not the first person to articulate this, but um, I find it hard to believe that this whole super golf league is going to uh, just go away now that uh, Dustin Johnson and Bryson DeChambeau have stepped away from it. There is an awful lot of money behind this thing, and even if they get it off the ground without as many stars uh, as they would like, uh, they have the money to be patient, and the longer it goes on, like you said the the more it gets normalized and uh, the you know the less dangerous it is from a public relations standpoint to take that plunge
0: all right so you mentioned the super golf league we should give some people some background on that so first the news broke in like late January 2020 that the premier golf league was preparing to start a series of events that were extremely well-funded that would try to attract the top players in the world and really take the fight directly to the PGA Tour. This was a major threat to the PGA Tour from the beginning because of the amount of money that was involved. These events would have purses far larger than those on the PGA Tour, and that is exactly what the PGA Tour had before that attracted the top players, was just bigger purses than rival tours like the European Tour. And so the Premier Golf League starts to uh, buck its head a bit in early 2020, and quickly the news breaks that the PGL, the Premier Golf League, is backed by Saudi money. And people immediately start to criticize that. The Premier Golf League is put on the defensive. Certain players like Rory McIlroy criticize that aspect of it right away and say, I don't like where the money's coming from. I'm not sure I want to be involved in that. Most players are kind of biding their time at this point, just seeing how things play out and not saying anything definitive. All right. So that's early 2020. Obviously we know (laughs) what happened to everything that was starting to develop in early 2020 and it immediately got scuttled by COVID and uh, the world got put on hold for a while. And so did the Premier Golf League. Now, fast forward about a year later, this is, you know, early to mid-2021, news starts to leak out that potentially the Premier Golf League is coming back, except it's a little bit confusing because there's the Premier Golf League, and then there's this new thing called the Super Golf League, and people have some trouble at first trying to figure out what these are, what they, whether it's a different league, uh, whether you know, they're all part of the same thing, whether they're just different names for the same thing. Eventually, it becomes clear that Saudi investors have broken away from the premier golf league, which is mostly run by European, British and European hedge fund types, you know, and and the Saudis were providing them funding at first. Okay, now it becomes clear that the Saudis have broken away and are trying to start their own thing which is now going by the name of the Super Golf League. All right, so that's early and mid-2021 when that's beginning to develop. And in fact, at the PGA Championship in May at Kiowa, as uh, Phil Mickelson is spectacularly and unexpectedly winning a major um, in his in his uh, later years, at that very same time, there's a lot going on at the PGA Championship, discussions about this Saudi-backed golf league. A lot of players talking to each other and uh, backers of the Saudi league talking to players and just recruitment going on. That has gradually developed since then. Greg Norman has been announced as the head of Live Golf Investments, which is backed by the Saudi Public Investment Fund. And it appears that Live Golf Investments is going to be the, the kind of company that tries to drive Saudi Arabia's activities in golf. Late 2021, it becomes clear that Live Golf Investments has invested in the Asian Tour instead of the European Tour, which it was initially, Saudi Arabia was initially involved with. Um, Live Golf Investments is going to sponsor a 10-event series on the Asian Tour, big purses, and also there is this developing Super Golf League. Greg Norman is at the head of it, doing this work on the Saudi government's behalf. And so that's essentially where we are right now. But meanwhile, the Saudi International Tournament is still happening. It, it, it's been played every year. There's a Saudi Ladies International on the Ladies European Tour that is beginning to happen every year. Lydia Ko won it late last year. It's going to be played again in March of this year. And so this stuff is continuing. And the Super Golf League is the thing that everybody talks about, but clearly Saudi Arabia is not going away just because, you know, as recently happened, Phil Mickelson opened his mouth to a few reporters and kind of blew things up and made it untenable from a public relations perspective for players like Dustin Johnson and Bryson DeChambeau to be connected with the Super Golf League anymore. And so they've put out statements saying, All right, we're on the PGA tour for now, right? Back off everybody. And uh, that was a blow to the Super Golf League. But I think that where we are right now is that this isn't going away. It's just experienced a setback. Saudi Arabia is going to try to make this thing happen within golf for the purposes of sports washing.
1: I have suspected that part of their motivation has to have been, and this is not going away, that golf's audience sort of tends to, to lean toward the sort of audience that you would like to sports wash toward. Golf is followed disproportionately by sort of upper class, white, politically connected people. If you are Saudi Arabia and you're interested in sort of positioning yourself for the, the late 21st century world economy, then it would be really nice to... Have a favorable image among uh, wealthy business, you know, your CEO sort of class that probably is more likely to follow golf than, say, the WWE. The same thing for politically connected. Uh, It would be nice to have a favorable image with uh, the Jared Kushners of the world. Uh, So there's still a lot for them to gain by uh, remaining in the golf space. And I, I doubt that this is going to be uh, the thing that pushes them away from that idea because those incentives remain.
0: And one of the most underrated parts of this whole endeavor has to do with golf courses and the building of golf courses. You know, just because the Super Golf League has been you know, temporarily disabled or, or hindered by Phil Mickelson's big mouth doesn't mean that they're going to stop building golf courses in Saudi Arabia. There, there are big projects going on right now to build up the country's golf infrastructure and, and architects like Jack Nicholas. Uh, appear to be very involved obviously greg norman has an architecture business that's that's likely going to build some courses gary player has been said to be uh in meetings related to this you know etc
1: yeah and you know it, it's interesting because the, if you're the saudis and you're kind of looking to kill two birds with one stone here um by hiring a guy like nicholas a you're gonna get to you know have a a, a an attractive golf course for you know, Western tourists to come in and play and, and go back, you know, post their pictures on, uh, on Facebook or whatever, you know, whatever social media, um, uh, app those folks use. And then, but also, um, Jack Nicklaus is of course very closely tied to golf magazine. And so you get the sorts of, uh, glowing reviews that, uh, that, that publication has put out in connection with this before, so it's a it's a really easy way for them to uh, get some good news and, and favorable attention out of it uh, by just keeping their foot in the golf space. And you know, one of the interesting things about golf to me is as much money is going into it, as much media attention as it gets. Golf world is still a pretty small world, and it's fairly easy to penetrate if you have. A leverage point, and God knows the Saudis do. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, why would you give up?
0: Yeah, and the Saudis. What the Saudis have is an enormous amount of money. In case we didn't make that clear, the the amount of money that they have to spend on this without worrying about return on their investment is so much bigger than what the PGA Tour has that it's just absurd. And that is the problem.
1: The, the public investment fund, which is the fund that the Saudis use to try to attract. Non-petroleum-based industry to their country is valued at 500 billion dollars, and you know by comparison, the PGA Tour brought in um, 1.5 billion dollars in revenue in 2019. So it's it's not a fair fight. If it comes down to a spending war, the Saudis are going to win.
0: All right. So well, let me present to you a couple of pretty common counter arguments I've seen to the criticism of Saudi Arabia's activities in golf. Maybe we could just kind of go through them and talk about how you would respond to them. Now, my own feeling about this, I I, I am opposed to the Super Golf League uh, for sure, but I'm not interested in this podcast of necessarily persuading people to think exactly the way I do. I, I hear you. That's not how I come at this. What I want to do is to provide people a set of tools that they can use for negotiating this extremely complex issue.
1: and And I know very smart people who uh, whose uh, whose perspectives I really respect, who uh, have more nuanced views of this, especially the farther you move away from the super golf league. Um, the The SGL is a pretty easy example to uh, to make a moral judgment on. Uh, but the farther you move away from that on the sort of sports washing spectrum, uh, the more complicated the conversations get. So I, I get it.
0: Yeah, SGL is, is Sports Washing 101. But when you start talking about tournaments hosted by, sponsored by large businesses in China, it, it might get a little more complicated because the connection between the company and the government is not necessarily as cut and dry as the connection between the SGL and the Saudi government, where the connection is completely direct.
1: And you're, you're speaking, of course, of the HSBC uh, World Golf Championships event uh, that has been held for a number of years in China. And I have seen that, uh, that distinction made too, that the HSBC is not directly funded by the Chinese Communist Party like it is by the Saudis uh, at the Saudi International. At the end of the day... That distinction is not meaningful to me. In that country, nothing happens without the permission, whether tacit or explicit, of the Chinese Communist Party. For another point, whether the HSBC is funded by the government or by a bank, for the Chinese Communist Party, the result is the same. You know, you you still get the same favorable headlines uh, in the United States and in other countries that that follow golf seriously. Uh, and so, if you know, if you're a Uyghur Muslim languishing in prison in the northwest part of the country, I doubt you care that the the tournament is sponsored by uh, a bank instead of by the regime. Uh, the The result is the same, and so I I know a lot of smart people who come down on that distinction has been one that, uh, that is meaningful. Uh, but I, to me, it just, it does not because, uh, the, the result is the same as it would be in Saudi Arabia.
0: I'm glad that right there, you've provided an answer to one of the most common counter arguments to anti Gulf Saudi rhetoric. And that response is what about China or what about country X? Uh, you know, why the selective outrage about Saudi? And it seems like your answer is, what about China? Yeah, that's bad too.
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, say what you want about the Saudis and God knows we, we have over the course of the last several minutes, at least there's not an active genocide going on in Saudi Arabia. There is in China. And so any event that gives momentum to that country's very intentional sports washing effort uh, at a moment where, there, again, there is literally a genocide occurring. To me, the, the fact that that part of the effort is being funded privately is not uh, is not meaningful.
0: I know that there's not a neat place to, quote-unquote, draw the line with which countries you object to hosting sporting events. Obviously, it sounds like we remain okay with the United States hosting sporting events, because that, that's not what we're talking about. But uh, as as we all know, uh, the, the U.S. has skeletons in its closet as well. And this is something that people commonly point out. Every country has some stories to tell about what their governments have done. And so how do you work your way through making judgments about which countries to object to and which not to?
1: As you say, everybody... Um, every country in the world has um, moments and, and existing practices uh, that uh, no reasonable person uh, should be proud of, and the United States is not beyond that. I mean, I'm a, when I'm not blogging uh, about uh, golf uh, at 4 o'clock in the morning, uh, I am a civil rights lawyer, and so no one will be quicker to call out the United States for uh, – violations of uh, individual dignities or human rights even uh, than me. Having said that, we do <laughs> at least have uh, a, a system of individual constitutional liberties that are protected by the rule of law. That is a pretty gigantic distinction uh, between us and the Chinas and Saudi Arabias and cutters of the world. We don't get it right nearly as often as we should, but we have a system of law set up in place where where we are at least trying.
0: Now, we're talking about matters right now that are not in the professional golfer's strict job description. When you become a professional golfer, when it's your dream to do that, you're not necessarily studying up on geopolitics. And so- one of the common counter arguments to the position that you have taken in this article you've written and in this podcast is these are golfers, not politicians. And in fact, this has become maybe the most common defense from golfers themselves for participating in the Saudi international and down the road, possibly being part of the super golf league. I am a golfer, not a politician. What would be your stock response to that claim?
1: I think we would all like sports and politics to be separate. You know, it's we love to tell ourselves that sports is an escape from the drudgery of uh, of everyday current events. And you know, I, I love turning on uh, a golf tournament on Sundays and kind of unplugging my brain too. But the truth is that sports and politics are not separate, and efforts at sports washing, like the one the Saudis are undergoing right now, are proof of that. The Saudis and the Chinese and every other country that that goes through this exercise understand that good sports can make for favorable politics. That is the only reason that the Saudis are interested in this. I can assure you that Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, could give two shits what Bryson DeChambeau's ball speed is. That is not why they are interested in golf. They are interested in it for their geopolitical gain. So they're, you know, it would be great if we could separate those two, but sports washers like the Saudis are the ones who married those two, and we ignore that to our own ignorance.
0: We also notice golfers doing politics when they go to the Saudi International whenever they say something about what saudi arabia is doing the great things that are happening in this country greg norman talking about seeing women in restaurants and out on the golf course that is <laughs> politics is it not
1: well of course it, what a preposterous thing to say that you know oh i saw some women in a restaurant and so you know so there must not be systemic human rights violations in that country but you know things like the you mentioned the the women's golf tournament happening happening in Saudi Arabia. It's such an easy token gesture for that regime to make, and perhaps there's even more upside in that than there is with the Saudi international or even the s g l that that you know it's so convenient to be able to point to that tournament in particular and say oh they you see they are making progress with women's rights uh that Women are taking on a more elevated role in their society, uh, and wow, they're they're even hosting a women's golf tournament now. Aren't they really? You know, aren't they moving forward from uh, the, the these policies that you know, that we used to talk about? When in fact, nothing has changed. The only thing that's changed is there's a professional women's golf tournament there once a year, but that's that's sports washing.
0: Now, building off of that point that you're making, that there is a kind of progressive image that might come along with hosting a women's golf tournament in particular. There are those who would say that engaging with Saudi Arabia through business, through sports, can provide a set of incentives for Saudi Arabia to clean up its act. I I think this might be maybe the most nuanced Position. I'm not saying it's correct, but that this would be a particularly sophisticated argument for saying that this is okay to go with the Super Golf League and to go with the Saudi International. By doing these things, by not isolating Saudi Arabia, we can uh, provide motivation for Saudi Arabia to, to to start working on its human rights record. And if we don't do that, then you know nothing's going to change anyway.
1: Well, except to the, you know, once the golf tournament goes there, anyone interested in seeing that sort of change occur has lost all their leverage. It would have been one thing if the European tour had said, okay, we'll be open to uh, sanctioning an event there, provided that you uh, you make X, Y, Z changes to the way that uh, women live their lives there. But what, does Bryson DeChambeau think he's going to show up and by the power of his example, inspire uh, massive changes to the way that country treats individual liberties. I I think that's a bit foolish. You, you don't have to hold a professional golf tournament in order to introduce societal reforms. You can do that without a golf tournament. And if they were interested in doing that, I submit to you that they w- would do it without a golf tournament because it would be less expensive. And even if you, you back away from the Saudi example, I mean, history is replete with examples of regimes that used sports washing along with the pretense that they were going to introduce reforms and then clearly did not. The, the Chinese are a good example of that. Leading into the 2008 Olympics, there were promises of cleaning up pollution and uh, introducing press freedoms. Uh, none of those promises were followed through on. Even going back to the 36 Olympics again, I don't think anybody would argue with a straight face that the 36 Olympics were a precursor to a more tolerant Germany. Uh, in fact, the you know, some of the worst human rights abuses uh, of the past several hundred years occurred within a few years of the 36 Olympics. So it, I, I think... Oh, there's my badly behaved dog who would also agree that uh, <laughs> sports washing... <laughs> Sports washing is not a precursor to reforms. Sports washing is insulation against those reforms. That's why Saudi Arabia is interested in this. It's because it might allow them to draw in investment from foreign investors while not making any real reforms.
0: All right. So finally, Will, what what do you think is going to be necessary for professional golf to resist this effort by Saudi Arabia? And are you optimistic that that resistance is going to be long lasting?
1: It, it's interesting. I, I think that you know you you mentioned at the top of the of the pod how long this is all taken to to play out, and then just over a span of very, you know, just a, a few days, uh, everything kind of fell apart. Um, the the reason that things fell apart wasn't because the Saudis ran out of money or anything like that. It was because the public relations blowback that Mickelson took after his comments to Alan Shutnuck came out was just so massive and unprecedented in coverage of professional golf that even someone like Bryson DeChambeau, who is, um, I would describe Bryson as mildly self-interested, uh, with an offer of 135 million dollars on the table, that even he could not stand by that offer. It is going to require golf media, golf fans, uh, all of our all of the stakeholders in the game to continue to scrutinize this. You know, the, this the Saudis' interest is not going away. Uh, the uh, sadly. Um, its record of human rights violations doesn't seem to be going away, uh, and so at, the farther we move away from this moment, uh, the moral implications of it are, are are not going to change. And it's up to media fans uh, to continue to hold these people's feet to the fire and make them understand and make their sponsors understand that uh, that we will. You know, for all the things we have turned a blind eye to in golf that we we will not turn a blind eye to this.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Will, for talking to me on on President's Day. Uh, <laughs> well, and, and <laughs> my, my dog, Molly, also, thanks. <laughs> I appreciate the dog as well. I appreciate your your family for uh, giving you this time to talk to me. And uh, thank you so much, everybody. Check out lying Lots of terrific writing on there, and very little of it in the grand scheme of things has to do with sports washing. So if you're just looking for some uh, really well-written profiles on uh, courses in the American South, then this this is the blog for you
1: a lot of discussion of obscure golf courses in southwest mississippi if that sounds like fun to you yeah, or sports washing you check it out
0: you, you, you can choose you can choose your own adventure there all right thank you so much will
1: my pleasure man
0: This episode of the Friday egg podcast was edited by me and Meg Atkins. Many thanks to Helen Lenski and Will Bardwell. One more reminder, the next four weeks are a great time to register for a Friday egg event. Click on the link in the show notes, check out our golf genius page, and see if there's anything that piques your interest. Thanks for listening.